Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, public health reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. A three-day conference in Ohio is bringing state Supreme Court justices and other high-ranking officials together to discuss battling drug abuse in the Midwest. This comes in the wake of many drug overdoses just this week. Hello and welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Sarah Whitmire in with Lindsay Wright. Thank you, Lindsay, for being Mm -hmm. here today. Bob Salzberg is off. Today on Noon Edition, we're hosting our own conversation about opioids such as heroin and the effects they're having on communities. Ohio, Kentucky, and West West Virginia were among the five states with the highest rates of drug overdose deaths in 2014, while Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Virginia were among 14 that the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention identified with significant drug overdose death rate increases from 2013 to 2014. What does the fight against opioids look like in Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky, from needle exchanges to naloxone? Today, we are going to answer your questions, and we're going to talk about this dangerous trend. Our guests today are Terry Demio. She is a reporter covering heroin with the Cincinnati Enquirer. Dr. Carrie Lawrence is with the Rural Center for AIDS and STD Prevention, and Chris Abert is with the Indiana Recovery Alliance. Thank you all for being here today. Uh, You can join the conversation. The number is 812-855-081 or toll free at 877-285-9348. So as we said earlier, there have been dozens of overdoses in Ohio and Indiana since Tuesday, and it's called the supercharged form of heroin. Um, Terry, you've been covering this every day, so I'm hoping you can kind of get us started by just talking about what the latest is and, and how we got here. Sure, I'm glad to do that. Well, Cincinnati is really reeling from six days of uh, spiking overdoses. Um, The community that typically gets about four overdose runs a day uh, has had 174 overdoses in the last six days. That's my latest count, um, including three deaths. And, yes, Tuesday and Wednesday, their, their numbers were at about 78. Everybody's a little cautious about you know, being exact with those numbers because we have multiple agencies reporting, but they are confident that, yeah, there, there have been about 100, more than 170 overdoses from August 19th, which was last Friday, uh, to yesterday. And uh, the scary thing, well, there, it's, it's tragic, obviously, but even scarier is that naloxone, the um, antidote that can reverse opioid and heroin overdoses, isn't working as quickly as what they're used to. Um, they believe that there is probably fentanyl or possibly even carfentanil, the um, large animal opioid that is in this heroin that we're seeing overdoses stem from. So, uh, Terry, can you just explain how, how this fentanyl is different than just straight heroin, if there is such a thing? Sure. Fentanyl, which we started seeing... Um, uh, a couple of years ago in greater Cincinnati, Ohio, and, and even northern Kentucky, is another opioid, analgesic. Um, some people might be familiar with the name because it's sometimes used as a painkiller for um, cancer. And it is about 100 times as potent as uh, the same amount of heroin. So right there, you're, you're, um, you're kind of playing Russian roulette with it. And uh, even though it is a prescription drug in the United States, the narcotics agents are mainly seeing this coming from overseas and particularly from China. And then only in July, um, Ohio, I think it was actually late June, early July, that Ohio started seeing this other drug, which is carfentanil. Um, appearing in their heroin stream on the streets. And carfentanil is about 100 times 
more potent than fentanyl. And it is generally for large animals. There's very little allowed in the United States at all. And I just talked to a DEA person yesterday who said this, too, appears to be coming from overseas. So, Chrissy, as part of the Recovery Alliance, you're seeing people every day who are facing these things. Do they have any idea what this is mixed with when they buy it? Uh, they don't, and there's no way to really tell. Uh, what we what we do know is that the, the fentanyl is not the pharmaceutical, typically not the pharmaceutical-grade fentanyl that's available in the United States. It's incredibly expensive. Um, so this will be... Oftentimes producers making bathtub fentanyl or pharmaceutical companies, like as was mentioned, overseas. Um, but there is no way for people using opiates to know what is in the drug until they put it in. There are ways to uh, help them mitigate some of the health risks uh, by education and teaching them how to try a little bit of it right before they um, finish the rest of it. Uh, as well as teaching overdose prevention um, for after the fact and distributing naloxone to make sure people are safe. So if I'm a, a drug dealer, why why would I want to incorporate fentanyl? Because it can be mixed with other things that seem really inexpensive, right? Like salt or something. Why these other drugs? Correct. So the idea would be that you would take a small amount of fentanyl, which, as was mentioned, was 100 times more potent than heroin, and then you might mix it into the batch. Uh, the problem is uh, these aren't, again, not pharmaceutical companies doing this mixing. Um, so you could, in fact, have one person who has no effect um, from the same batch of a person who overdosed. Is it cheaper for them than just doing straight heroin to mix it with these other things? I'm, I'm just trying to understand, like, why, why do we get to a point where we're mixing these, you know, drugs that were once used to treat cancer or elephant tranquilizers? <laughs> with heroin. In a larger context, the way we got here uh, was the pharmaceutical companies pushing these high-powered opiates uh, onto doctors, then doctors overprescribed. Uh, as that has been leashed in a little bit, um, you have created mass amounts of opiate addicts uh, who then turn to street drugs. Uh, and, and as it gets more difficult to obtain pharmaceutical-grade drugs, uh, they look for heroin and cheaper alternatives. Um, like Terry mentioned, she called it playing Russian roulette um, for these users. And I've talked to firefighters and public officials who say, you know, you're playing with this stuff and it's it's a death wish. It's a, it's a death, you know, you're asking for a death sentence. And I guess my question is, are do these user, users care? Um, but not only that, are they seeking it out? What do you think, Carrie? Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, I think, I mean, they do care. I think, I, I think that I that's one kind of major issue that's ongoing is the stigma associated with this with this substance use. And so, you know, they're less likely to reach out or to really hear you because of the way we we are towards them. Um, so I think, you know, in order to do effective education, we kind of there's the philosophy behind harm reduction that we meet people where they're at. Um, and come at it in a non, you know, we have to kind of shift our thinking, um, especially those of us who have never experienced um, that kind of addiction before. Um, so I think that's, you know, the short answer to it. Um, so even just feeling safe enough to receive the information and to really be able to hear the information is its own craft because of we've we've created this this problem for so long and the you know along with our war on drugs and all the other social factors that go into it that we're now having to like slowly engage folks again that normally were considered the outcasts um, of society and so that takes time to build that trust up, to get that education, like you were saying. Um, yeah. Go, go ahead. Okay. So a doctor I talked to very recently said, you know, his patients are telling him, telling him I'm afraid. I, I don't want to leave my house. But, of course, they are compelled to do so because of the changes in the brain due to addiction disease. Mm -hmm. And um, so do they care? Are they concerned? Absolutely. So, so, Terry, when something like this starts happening in Cincinnati and they're noticing this is a lot more overdoses than we're used to seeing, how, how do they get the word out if these are people who aren't necessarily 
I don't know, are they not plugged into the news or how do you, how do you how do you reach them? Maybe Terry, you can say how it was done there, and then Chris, you can chime in because it was in Indiana too. Sure, in in Cincinnati, officially, the, there's the um, heroin coalition, and what happens there is when they receive information that emergency calls are going up, emergency rooms are seeing more people um, with overdoses, they will immediately contact every treatment center, every everything that they can that's connected, including police and fire and doctors and hospitals and say, hey, look out for this. You may, and for police officers, carry more naloxone now and, and things like that. They, in turn, you know, notify the media. And I think what's generally happening is that people who love the people who are addicted are getting that information out to them. Um, when on over the weekend, I apologize, I can't remember exactly when, there's been so much going on. The first people I heard from um, about this spiking overdose problem in Cincinnati were actually mothers of adult children who are addicted. They were, my phone was blowing up. You know, oh my gosh, I can't find my kid, I'm hearing this, another kid told us that. You know, there's overdoses going, what can you do for us, what can you tell us, what do you know? And as this was going on, for a few seconds, you know, maybe a minute or two, um, I got a notification from the Hamilton County Heroin Response Coalition. So the people who are trying to get the word out are often people who care about people who are addicted, and that's the way they're spreading the word. How is that similar to what's been happening Yeah, I would here? echo those sentiments. Um, we find that people who are using drugs and their families are so stigmatized that they're afraid to speak publicly. Uh, so if you create a space where people come in and they're not judged and they don't have any coercion uh, affecting them, then we can actually be very helpful in getting the word out to the affected communities. Um, so one of the things we talk about a lot is to be participant-driven uh, as opposed to a top-down structure. And the reason for that Again, it's because of all that stigma and the difficulty in, in getting word out. Uh, so we can, you know, we have we reach thousands of IV drug users locally uh, that we can very quickly get word out to. Okay. And I know Terry said, you know, about 174 overdoses, and we've had, what, a dozen and a half or so here. But, I mean, honestly, the, the deaths have been, what, four or five? Not that many. So I think... If we can just start by talking about how naloxone works, is that, is that the wrong well, numbers? Well, actually, I want to just, what makes Indiana a little bit unique um, as far as really getting good numbers around overdose deaths is that the person who signs the death certificate is not always, a, well, is not a trained or required to be a trained medical professional. And so what is the cause of death may not represent those real numbers that you just gave um, because of you know, wanting to protect the family. Um, it could be just labeled as an accidental death um, and not a death by overdose, by accidental overdose. Um, so our numbers, at least here in Indiana, are somewhat skewed because our county coroners are not trained medical professionals or have any of that type of training and required to label it as such. Okay, but in Ohio, Terry, mm -hmm. they're labeling them that way. Is that correct? That is that is correct, yes. Okay. Um, and they're, you know, obviously until they get toxicology done, they're going based on, you know, whether the person initially responded to um, naloxone, whether, you know, whether there was paraphernalia there, whether someone was there with them and knew, or if they're a known drug user. But, of course, um, they, they want to get to the bottom of it and find out, and they're confident in a sad way that the three that we've experienced in the last couple of days were indeed drug overdose, opioid of some sort, or heroin. Okay. How, how is it that uh, naloxone would, can reverse that? Yeah, I would like to just add quickly um, that naloxone, the recent changes in naloxone laws in Indiana have enabled us to get that naloxone out to first responders. Uh, so all over the state, Overdose Lifeline and the Indiana Recovery Alliance have been equipping first responders uh, over the last year. So at least in Indiana, 
because of those efforts and because some funding was made available, those death tolls are going to be much, um, much less. Also, locally through Monroe County, the Indiana Recovery Alliance, we've distributed almost 4,000 doses of naloxone since September. Um, so we're, we are pretty confident that it is a direct result uh, of that legislative change and, and some of the funding that we receive, though we need more, uh, that's stopped uh, fatalities from being what they would have been without. It's kind of a crazy to imagine what the numbers might be like if it weren't for naloxone in these cases when you look at that. Um, who, I don't know who is best here to talk about just sort of the science of how how naloxone is able to re- reverse the effects of the overdose. The, the way it works, uh, naloxone is a, is, goes into the brain, and it is more attracted to the opiate receptors than opiates themselves. So it knocks the opiates out of those receptors. Uh, it ha- doesn't last that long. So within about 90 minutes, it will fall out of those receptors, and the opiates can reattach themselves. In that 90 minutes, though, the body will metabolize enough opiates to allow for sustained breathing. Uh, of the person who had had administered the opiates. So when Terry mentioned that in some of these cases it was taking more than one dose, so that's because... That's because it was so much more powerful and it it attached to so many more opiate receptors uh, that you will need, if it is 100 times more powerful, you're going to need 10 times more naloxone or however many more times uh, the amount of naloxone. So we've heard of people using four or five doses of the intramuscular naloxone uh, before the person was able to begin breathing again on their own. And you talked about, um, you know, the fact that we have the the availability to naloxone um, so much more. Um, when things like this happen, where there are these overdoses, and not only that, but you're um, using so much more because of the how powerful it is, that kind of depletes the resources. What's the problem there? The problem is artificial uh, price increases. Uh, there's Naloxone was created in 1961. It was uh, approved by the FDA in 1971. It's a generic drug. Uh, not that long ago, it was available for pennies on the dose, and that has increased uh, about on average to $150, much like the EpiPen uh, story that's going through the news right now, mm-hmm. except for instead of going up to $500, some of those went from $700 up to $4,200 for a kit. That's, so first responders can carry it now in, o, in Ohio, and then people can go to a pharmacy and get it without a prescription, too. Correct. Mm-hmm. The stigma, though, uh, for families and people using drugs to walk into a public pharmacy and ask for naloxone uh, is larger than one might realize. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what we need is incredibly low barrier access. And when I say low barrier, I mean no judgment, no strings attached, very minimal reporting requirements, uh, if any. Um, And by reporting requirements, I mean getting demographics of the people that are coming in to get it. Because again, people are so afraid that A, you're with a police department and getting their information to then turn over for investigation uh, or that you're judging them. Um, and it's very difficult to, to reach people, as we mentioned. In, in ter- I think it's important to mention that um, naloxone is a non-narcotic. Some people are still confused about, oh, you know, giving them um, a drug to to get them better, which, by the way, I think is just fine. Um, but it is a non-narcotic, therefore why why not just pick it up yourself off the counter and purchase it? You know, it is not harmful. It, if if you accidentally squirted it into somebody's nasal passages, it, the worst it would do is feel a sting like if you would do that with water. And is there a problem with access in Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky? Like there, there feel- are a lot more places that are providing it. We have, you know, all of our programs in, in Cincinnati and Kentucky and lots of other places are doing it. I think, though, that... Um, that there are families and people who um, are addicted who prefer to get it from um, groups that are advocates, like people advocating recovery or um, our needle exchange um, centers, because of that stigma. And and we have 17 locations in 
northern Kentucky alone, where there's mobile access to naloxone on specific dates and times, and um, I think it's it's quite easy to get. So I was wondering, here we had the issue in Jennings County. So if you're in one of these rural areas, is there access? I mean, I can't imagine there. Like Terry saying 17 places. Well, I think I think you know, as as she stated, too, more retail pharmacies are you are able to access it without a prescription. However, the cost is always a barrier, as well as what Chris mentioned, the stigma that goes associated along with it, um, and then ver- as far as you know. I, I'm sh- finding like the 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 funding to give it out for free um, with the as she said the more effective programs like the Indiana Recovery Alliance or Overdose Lifeline um, is pretty scarce. Um, we know as as Chris stated like the um, <clears throat> the state health department received a grant to help local health departments. But is that enough with the, the demand that's so high? Um, I think we need to, like, rethink um, what, the, like, a comprehensive system to address these opiate issues across the gamut and really truly practice the harm reduction and, and practice it and build that system well so we can deliver those services, you know, more effectively. So, for example, uh, the Attorney General's office offered a grant to distribute naloxone to first responders. Uh, we received that grant, and then throughout six counties, we were equipping first responders. Uh, that money depleted very quickly, and we were actually in Jackson County uh, giving, offering their police departments and fire departments and EMT naloxone, but we weren't able to continue uh, because the money was no longer available. So while we're appreciative uh, that the Attorney General and different organizations will make that money available, it needs to be continued and it needs to be in much larger amounts if we're going to save lives. So is this like the needle exchanges in a way where you have to just keep reapplying for grants in order to to keep the money for naloxone and Absolutely. Right. As of now, there is no money allocated uh, at the state, federal, or local level for harm reduction efforts. All of the money comes in either through grants, uh, through private donors, or in-kind donations. Mm-hmm. And the and the recertification is a little <clears throat> bit different in that the naloxone, well, everyone should be trained. Um, I always kind of parallel it with, with CPR and first aid, right, um, to do it well and do it, make sure that you're effective getting educated and how to, especially the intermuscular, as I, Chris did the training with me and I was like, I have to do what? (laughs) Um, So I think that having that education, I mean, we now have it here available at at the IU campus for students to purchase even at the Student Health Center. Um, So I think learning how to do it and being comfortable with the different devices, knowing that the kind of easier device, like an EpiPen, is more expensive than, as Chris said, the the intermuscular. So um, I think that's a really important component. Um, And so having um, those resources available and making sure that these efforts can be sustainable, even for our first responders, who I think are the critical key, as well as the family members and the users themselves. Anybody who would like to get naloxone uh, is welcome to to contact the Indiana Recovery Alliance. Uh, You can find our contact information at indianarecoveryalliance.org or on Facebook. Uh, And we give out free naloxone. We train people. Uh, It's completely anonymous, no judgment, and we would love to see them. 812-855-0811. Today on Noon Edition, we're talking about heroin overdoses in particular and more than 174 probably closer to 200 if we count the ones here in indiana too in the last six days with this latest round of this bad heroin we have to take a break here in a minute but we have a lot more to talk about in the second half of the show we'll be right back This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. 
and you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. Today we're talking about heroin overdoses. You can join our live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition or tweet at Noon Edition. You can also call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. We have a great panel today with Terry Dimio from the Cincinnati Inquirer who just covers heroin, Dr. Carrie Lawrence from the Rural Center for AIDS and STD Prevention, and Chris Abert from the Indiana Recovery Alliance. We've been talking a lot about naloxone and how this latest round of heroin, uh, you know, some people did unfortunately die, but a lot of people overdosed and were brought back because of naloxone. But I'm curious to know what happens after we, we bring these people back using naloxone. What happens next to them? Um, Un- unfortunately, for many people who uh, call 911, oftentimes uh, it's treated as a criminal investigation. Uh, they face charges uh, for possession or various other um, criminal charges that can be levied against them. Uh, so uh, what would be helpful would be legislation for a Good Samaritan Act uh, so that if people did call 911 that they were protected from charges. We've had stories of, of mothers being arrested. Um, of nurses being arrested, of people in public health themselves being arrested after administering naloxone to loved ones. Does Indiana's Lifeline law cover that at all? Just alcohol. Just alcohol. Just alcohol. And Terry, what, in in Cincinnati, I mean, are are people able to get into treatment or or what happens next in the process there? I'm just uh, thinking it seems like you've been dealing with this a lot longer perhaps than our area. Yeah, um, so first of all, there are Good Samaritan laws in place in the state, and most police officers um, and certainly prosecutors will uh, not charge someone who has overdosed or has called 911 about an overdose and has administered naloxone. Um, that's the last thing that they want to do. Yeah, now, does it happen sometimes? I have heard stories that it does, but generally speaking, that doesn't. We are at problem point, which we should have, I think, addressed well before this blowout of heroin overdoses, which is the emergency rooms are not equipped to seamlessly transfer someone into or bring someone into treatment. Um, We have some harm reduction coalition people out there. We have quite a few. Um, And I find that Mothers who band together are the most likely people to, you know, see, literally see someone on the street and try to get them help, or, or they just have like their own connections to treatment centers and they will drive everywhere basically to drop someone off or bring someone in. Now we do have more and more doctors, addiction doctors, who are um, connected almost on a personal level, you know, with uh, some of our treatment places. For example, we have we have one uh, doctor here who I talked to said, yeah, um, you know, the hospital knows to call me or so-and-so at this treatment center knows to, that I can help with getting a space for someone here. You know, it's like, but it is not, um, there's no protocol for it and there are no, you know, there's no way that there's even enough um, credible good treatment out there if everyone were to seek at once. So that that's what we need. We need immediate treatment, treatment on demand, which I think is what we need throughout the country. You guys can correct me if you think I'm wrong about that, but yeah, no. there's, there's a problem. Yeah. Exactly. We have a, I mean, on average, it's a, if, if there's something available, and rarely is there anything available in Indiana, that it's on average a 90-day waiting list. Um, in fact, Chris can probably talk to more, but one thing that I was always surprised um, to even think about is, you know, oftentimes he's in a situation where he's giving folks enough naloxone to stay alive so they can even get into treatment while they wait those 90 days. So that's a whole nother systemic 
issue that doesn't seem to be being it's not been effectively addressed in any way and i don't know what the right answer is um i can tell you something we're doing or seeing much more than greater cincinnati um which is yes we have those waiting lists as well however there are some of our better um treatment centers are um, getting intensive outpatient access there is Yes, of course, residential care is important for people, but you can get more doctors who can provide suboxone and connect people with counseling, um, psychosocial therapy, and things like that, than then have beds so, because of the expense of it. So we're seeing expansion of intensive outpatient care here. Just wanted to drop that in. We should probably go to the phones. We've had a couple people waiting here. Randall from Terre Haute, go ahead with your question. Well, I've been listening to this. I've read about the recent uh, super uh, heroin thing. And uh, the thing is, we've been fighting the drug war since, you know, when, the 40s, 30s? I don't know. And... uh, we're never going to win it. We're not going to arrest our way out of it. We're not going to treat our way out of it. Um, and another thing I've come to realize is that the medical profession has got a lot of guilt on their heads for prescribing probably more and stronger stuff than they needed to, But because we don't want anybody to feel any pain. That just hasn't worked very well, has it? And... Um, you know, this may sound really cold and callous, but maybe if the customer ain't there to buy it anymore, the dealer won't have anything to do. I want to let. I think, it, I, I think it's time that us taxpayers can be off the hook for these people because that's who's paying for all the crap treatment and jail and everything. Our jails are overfilled. We have to build new ones, pay for them. We're on the hook for it. These people keep on revolving through the door. I worked in a state hospital in a prison a total of 30 years. I know what it is. It is just people don't care for themselves or anybody else. Okay. Well, Randall, thank you for calling. I'm a, no. pretty, I'm a pretty harsh person about that, but I'm sick and tired of paying for it. Okay. A, a lot there, and I want to give our panel panelists here a chance to respond. Um, Chris, you want to uh, comment? So I would agree with one part of that, that we need to stop criminalizing a public health issue. We've For, for over 100 years now, we've turned a public health issue into a criminal and moral issue, uh, which it is not. Eighty percent of the people using heroin today started with a prescription drug. So the idea that people don't care about their health or that these are others uh, that are not our family members, community members, and loved ones, uh, is misguided and incredibly dangerous to put people in categories where we no longer have to care about them. Um, But treating people with cages uh, is never going to work. Treating people with compassion and without judgment. um, I think another thing that that the caller expressed was this idea that uh, people who use drugs and, and live chaotic lifestyles chose that and therefore deserve to suffer the consequences of those choices. And we know without a doubt uh, that the brain is literally hijacked uh, by addiction and that where there might have been choices at one point, uh, there no longer is a choice. I've seen people lose their children. I've seen people go to prison for decades. uh, And they were told that all these things would happen if they didn't stop and they could not stop. They continued to use against their will. Well, and and I also, I think, and this kind of goes back to the, I think, some of the barriers because of the criminalization problem is that although, you know, such programs such as intensive outpatient treatment could work, we've been using it as a a negative consequence as a result of being court-ordered to it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, again... Figuring out a way to to break down those barriers um, to these resources, um, and you know, I have never, you know, in the various roles that I've played before, jumping into academia, like I've never met someone who, you know, is using a current using these and addicted to um, these type of drugs that that they want to be like this. They don't wake up one morning and say, oh, I think I'm going to be addicted. It's this process. And as, as and it gets to a point where your brain is no longer allowing you 
to, to think that you don't need it anymore. So People who use drugs care about their health. Yeah. They care about their community. Let's go to another caller now. Stan from Bloomington. Go ahead, Hi. Stan. Thank you. Um, it seems to me from what I've been hearing that the, the, the programmatic uh, action on this is, is political. It's a social uh, function that should be tackled at the highest levels, which means our elected officials, both in Congress and the executive branch, and I especially would point out that, that the, the, the major institutions of our uh, country should be able to purchase this directly at much lower prices and distribute it in a more efficient manner than uh, smaller level uh, communities can do. That's all I wanted to say. Thanks, Dan. Would any of you all like to respond? During other public health epidemics, there have been precedents uh, where patent laws were set aside. There isn't a patent on naloxone. Mm -hmm. uh, but th I think the idea of a, a manufacturer for naloxone and then giving it away at cost, which, again, is pennies, uh, would lower the economic. I also want to say, again, no taxpayer money is going towards naloxone. The attorney general's grant was from uh, settlements against, against pharmaceutical companies. Uh, most of the money that we're getting actually is from grassroots organizations or local foundations or, uh, or grants. Okay. And that's the same in Ohio and Kentucky. So, Terry, I saw in Ohio there's this change.org petition to try to get the governor to declare a state of emergency. Um, and it already has, what, six or 7,000 signatures. Is I'm wondering, is there a precedent for doing something like that where you can actually then, you know, get more state money or something towards this problem? Do you Have you covered that at all, Terry? Actually, I haven't, but I've been trying to follow it as I see people sign it and I see it out there. And I can tell you that in Baltimore, the health commissioner declared a state of emergency. And what that did was free up resources and get them the ability to get Funding, additional funding um, to help with this crisis. And in Kentucky and Ohio, I think the governor's offices and the legislators have made progress um, in, in funding and helping with these situations, but definitely, um, you know, there, there could be way more um, money available that would much more help. I do think that some people may not be as, um, you know, understand as much that the medical community itself also needs to respond more than it has. We have, um, I believe we have, I don't remember what the numbers are exactly, but only about 40% of the doctors, for example, who are certified to prescribe Suboxone, and this is SAMHSA um, researchable, actually do it. So even among those who are getting certified to do it, it's, there's, there's evidence that they're, they're not even doing it yet. So we have, we have a multi-pronged issue, and certainly the government is a big part of this and part of the solution, we hope, but I think the medical community itself um, has lived its own stigma over the years and is just kind of coming to the forefront with this. And so folks know Suboxone is one of the FDA-approved treatments to help get you off of heroin. We should go next to Bruce. He's been waiting for a while here on the phone. So, Bruce, uh, go ahead. Well, I'm afraid your panelists are way off base because they're talking about a drug problem and the bulk of the problem uh, are not drugs. It's uh, uh, economics. And the problem is is that um, if you have uh, a very small pool of jobs, the employers can be very selective about who they hire. Back in the old days, they couldn't be so, so selective because they needed the personnel there. And so that leads to hopelessness. And towns like Austin, Indiana, have been absolutely devastated by the economic problems. So you take a person that wants to go straight, goes through treatment, comes out clean, where's the job for them? 
People are happiest when they're able to improve their own lives through their own efforts. And for many, many people, that's not available. Sure, the best, the most competitive will succeed in this economy. But if you've got people with other problems, they're going to be eliminated from the job pool. What's that going to lead to? And, uh, you know, I, I rest my case. Look at Austin, Indiana. Look at Detroit. Look at the south side of Chicago. That's a great point. I, I want to give our panelists a chance to respond. Because what I've what I've read, that's even how the opioid <laughs> crisis kind of started in the in the Rust Belt area. Yeah, and so actually, Bruce, I agree with you. Um, I think that that is a, definitely those what we call the social determinants of health play a huge factor. And and again, the all of these we've kind of constructed this issue in a ver- with a variety of factors, including the socioeconomic. Um, pieces as well as the criminalization because once you have that felony getting a job having stable housing it's it becomes almost impossible especially depending on where you live and and to be able to have a, a job and and kind of a safe and stable um, livelihood so I think you're you're absolutely right um, that's that's definitely caused this to be an ongoing issue that's now just exploding. It's past escalation. We're, we're just out of kind of figuring out how to, what to do f- about it. Um, and I know in the work that I've been done doing in across Indiana and some of the rural counties, you know, that economic development is always on the table as a conversation. Um, and I know specifically some more current work I've been doing with Austin and looking at um, kind of in integrating kind of re- aspects of recovery into the workplace um, so that people will have more opportunities to, to build up their, their own kind of economic health. 812-855-0811 is the number to call in with your questions here. Is this perhaps the tipping point in this heroin epidemic? Um, Terry, are you getting a sense that this has just been a wake-up call to people that we're not yeah. what we're doing isn't working? Yes, I believe it has. This um, this big outbreak of overdoses here in the Cincinnati region, um, and by the way, they're seeing uh, they're seeing a surge in northern Kentucky as well. And everybody's kind of on pins and needles in the surrounding counties in Ohio, southwest Ohio. Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a, a slap in the face. Like, yeah, we need to, we don't have a real grip on this. Now, I can say that there have been model programs of, of quick response teams, um, and that's going to be expanded in Hamilton County. These are, these are partnerships between Along, you know, between law enforcement, treatment people, and emergency responders who, as soon as somebody is well after an overdose, will go to their homes and talk to them about getting treatment and, and kind of keep that line along and, and um, try to get as many people treatment as, as quickly as possible. Uh, so that's something that we started already and is expanding, but clearly we this is a makeup call. I want to add, too, that naloxone and harm reduction and treatment, none of these are silver bullets for this problem. As the caller, uh, well, I disagreed with his views on us living in a meritocracy, he did have a point um, about systemic problems leading uh, to our current situation. Uh, and if you look at countries like Portugal, who have tried radical approaches, uh, they have to address those employment. So what they did was completely decriminalize everything. But they didn't stop there. They took the money that used to go towards prisons and used to go towards uh, the criminalization, and they put it into, for example, uh, paying local businesses half the salary of people uh, to get them employed, right? And, and so it's not – and I don't even like focusing just on the sense of an employment because that is one way to find sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. Uh, But there are other ways that we can give a sense of belonging and a sense of meaning and purpose to people, which is absolutely essential, uh, I believe, for sustained recovery. Yeah, because I think just... Go ahead, Terry. You know, I also want to say, obviously, you guys have seen that. We have seen this in our rural communities. 
But one thing that I think should not be ignored is that we are also seeing a great number of people who are very affluent, affluent people. We are seeing suburban, not rural people who are being, being affected. In fact, our urban areas, as you know, are, despite what's happened here in Cincinnati, are not seeing as much uh, opioid or heroin addiction um, as our suburban areas, and that includes very affluent people in our communities. I don't want people to lose sight and, mm-hmm. and think that people outside to think that this is a problem for those who are impoverished or have less means, because it's not isolated to that. I know you're aware of that. Um, Colleen from Bloomington is on the line, and Colleen has a question about the cost of treatment. Go ahead, Colleen. Hi. I just wanted to say thank you, first of all, for bringing attention to this, because it is an epidemic that touches not only the lives of the intravenous drug users, but all of the people around them, too. And I certainly don't think that this is an issue that needs to come down to purely cost. There's a lot of humanity and compassion that would go a great deal farther in addressing the situation. I'm thankful for those of you that do that. But to address, because some people seem to think that the answer is to cut off spending all taxpayer money, I was wondering how much it costs the taxpayers to not provide needles, to not provide services, naloxone. How much does it cost for a taxpayer when a person ends up with hepatitis C or HIV from intravenous drug use. So how much are we actually spending because we're not funding rehabilitation and meeting intravenous drug users where they are? Well, I think in, you know, I can at least answer for the the cost related to the outbreak um, for long-term treatment with those who are who were currently at the time the CDC reported was around $100 million for the treatment costs associated. And that was when the numbers were much lower um, than where they are in Scott County, where they are today. Um, So $100 million. um, And I think it was when we were in, you know, maybe about 100 individuals who had tested positive. And that was you know, looking at just the co- treatment cost for those individuals of the outbreak itself. So, um, you know, I think that is a huge, you know, the taxpayers will be paying for that. Um, so as far as the cost associated and Chris, I think, has more. Uh, so just take Lawrence County, for example, uh, the amount of hepatitis C cases they've reported just in the last six months is going to cost nearly five million dollars in treatment. Um, a harm reduction, a state-of-the-art harm reduction program for Lawrence County might cost $100,000. Uh, so studies show again and again that for every dollar spent, $7 is saved. Um, another thing we don't think about, though, are costs for endocarditis, uh, costs for abscesses, costs for cellulitis, heart valve replacements, liver replacements. If you get to the point where you're actually doing a liver replacement, it's beyond both these HIV and um, hepatitis C figures. Well, so it's a, it's a it, coming from it financially, it's a shoe-in, but we don't want to forget that these are real people whose real lives are devastated and communities are destroyed. And I think the unintended consequences and I think I think Terry it was one of the folks I saw in one of your articles had overdosed in Cincinnati and was behind the wheel. So then it, it seems like a growing thing that's happening there in terms of people driving while they're they're high too, and then that's affecting innocent people. That's true. We believe that, that we understand that that person happened to be parked in a parking lot, but we have seen many, many more uh, people overdosing while literally while driving um, in our communities. Thank you for the call, Colleen. Thank you, guys. We have someone else who had a question about the pros and cons. I, I, I think they're asking of having the Recovery Alliance in Bloomington. So, Chris, I think you are the person to answer that. Uh, from, from everything we know, and I could be uh, biased here, but from everything we know, um, the cons tend to be uh, moralistic and political in nature uh, and, and have no data to back them. Uh, while the pros are overwhelming, 
uh, in the research over the past 30 years that's gone into it, uh, as well as cost effectiveness um, as far as keeping law enforcement safe, as far as keeping neighborhoods safe. So again and again and again, uh, the pros, in fact, one, uh, when we do presentations, we'll show uh, the list of people that support harm reduction, like the American Medical Association, CDC, SAMHSA, all these organizations. And then we have a list of people, organizations that are against, and it is empty. And we only have about two minutes left here. So, Terry, it seems like a lot of these overdoses have now peaked based on, on what we've been saying. But what happens what happens now do we wait for the next the next big thing or do our law enforcement able to track where this came from or where do we go law enforcement is working to do that and i understand that uh the coroner has now um found a source for a sample of carfentanil which is that elephant opioid um with which to check against um those who have died you know they're their blood. Um, yeah, they're looking for, the police are looking for help from the community, people who may know, may know or people who have purchased um, what they thought was heroin. And we do have some movement now within our local governments uh, trying to, and medical people, trying to hurry up and get treatment available to those who are addicted. Okay. That's where we're at. Thank you, Terry. And unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. I want to thank our guests for joining us. The Indiana Recovery Alliance's Chris Aber, Rural Center for AIDS, STD Prevention's Carrie Lawrence, and Cincinnati Inquirer's Terry Demio. Thank you all so much for being here. Uh, for our producer, Sophia Salaby, engineer Mike Pashkash, and co-host Lindsay Wright, thank you. I'm Sarah Whitmire. This is Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.